Hey, this is Pastor Ali, one of the lead pastors of Bold Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. If you want to stay up to date with Bold Church, if you want to find out when our next gathering is or how to live stream an event, head over to bold.church. Enjoy the message. Who is excited for church? Come on, can we get up for God's word? Uh, if we have not met my, uh, my wife and I, we started this place called Bold five years ago with a dream. Uh, we wanted to create a place where not only Christians could come and grow in their faith, but unchurched people could explore faith. Anyone excited for God's word this morning? Come on. And before we begin, let me just, I want to give honor where honor's due. Uh, typically, we have Ethan, who leads our worship team. And when he's gone, like on vacation this week, he brings in another worship leader. Well, that worship leader canceled on Monday. And uh, wow, yeah. I was excited. That's one of my re- response, too. And I just want to give honor to this team. You didn't even notice that we, didn't, we were down. And they led us in the presence. Can we just give it up for them? Uh, a lot of that is the coaching from my wife. So I want to give you honor because you, you were telling them they could do it. So God bless you. Uh, we are in a collection of talks called Seven. Somebody shout Seven. seven. So if you're new to church, we're doing something crazy. We're starting, studying one of the hardest books of the Bible, the book of Revelations. But we're trying to make it super practical. We're only studying the first three chapters of this book where Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches. And some of you, maybe you're new, you, you don't even know what we're talking about. Let me show you a map. These are real places that Jesus talked to. This is not like a, like a metaphor. These are real churches with, filled with real people. And every week, Jesus is addressing a church, and they got problems. They got massive problems. And uh, today is no different. I just need to warn you, it's going to be a hard sermon, but it's going to be a fun one. Are you ready for God's word? Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. If it's in your notebook, you brought it. It's page 12. To the church of Thyatira. Someone say Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Someone say tolerate. That woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. We're going there today. You're going to learn today. By teaching, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols and watching Laker games. My translation says that. It's not a lot of jokes today. I got to get them as much as I can. I've given her time to repent over immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her Suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Jesus is a loving God, by the way. I just want to kind of point that out to you for those of you that are new. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on you any other... Of any other burden on you except to hold on. Someone say, hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now every week, try to make the sermon sticky, we give you a theme song. 
If you were here week one, uh, we, we sang as a church, you've lost that love and feeling. Some of you remember that. Week two, we, we sang a David Bowie and Queen song, Under Pressure. Some of you think it's Vanilla Ice. Originally, it was Queen. Uh, last week, I introduced you to some of you, the, probably one of the worst musicians of all time, uh, Weird Al Yankovic. I had to pick fake music. It was either Taylor Swift or Weird Al, and I went with Weird Al. Wow, shots fired. Today, I can't sing this song, and, and I, I can't just have you hear it. To understand the metaphor that Jesus is talking about, you got to see this song. So the theme for today's song is this. Just watch along. Oh, look at those dance moves. We got to understand that that's Millie Vanilli. And for those of you that are born in the greatest generation, the 80s, these guys shot on MTV to the number one band in America. They were the most downloaded song. By before, this is downloads. This is like the most played song on the radio. And what ended up happening is no one knew they were lip singing. They actually didn't even sing any of the songs on their album. They just looked the part. And often we do that in Christianity. We're so focused on the outside. We don't even care what's going on on the inside. And so the title of the sermon is this, Milli Vanilli Christianity. I'm trying hard to make it enjoyable. Come on. Let's pray because God's got a word for us. God, thank you so much, Lord, for what you want to speak today. God, you are a father who corrects his children. Uh, let us see your ways as not an angry God, but a loving father. God, you have some hard words, but that's what parents do sometimes. You, you, you correct because we're going down a path that's going to hurt us path of destruction, and you want to give us life and life abundantly, God. God, if we ever doubt your love, may we look to the cross of you suffering on our behalf, not when we were your friends, but when we were your enemies. God, for those that are in this room that don't even know you yet or are questioning who this God is, God, would you speak in a way that will help them understand? God, I, I'm doing my best, Lord, to preach your word with power in a creative way so we can all understand. If you believe that everybody said, everybody said, well, you got to understand who Jesus is talking to. One of the principles we talk about, if you want to understand the scriptures, the first rule of interpretation is context. Second rule of interpretation is context. And the third rule is context. And Jesus is speaking to a real church called Thyatira. Someone say Thyatira. Thyatira. The problem with this church is that it's gone. The city doesn't even exist anymore. There's very little known. And what's interesting about this city, it's actually the smallest city, but they got the biggest problems. In my culture, I'm from Iran, born and raised. We have this saying that like beautiful girls are really difficult. Khushkil girls are Morshkil. And this church is like that. They're small, but they're very difficult. And we don't know much about Thyatira other than Paul. When he's in the book of Acts, he goes and he meets Timothy's grandmother called Lydia. And she's from this city. Outside of that, we don't know much about this city. And so Jesus begins speaking to the church by saying, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God. Let me just pause right there. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for telling me who you are. Right? Like we all know Jesus is the Son of God. What, why is he telling us what we already know? It's like me, me telling you the sky is blue, water's wet, and the sun is hot. Like we didn't learn anything by this. But you got to understand Jesus' salutation, there's power and there's purpose in them. This is Jesus spiritually flexing. 
So why is he doing this? Because every week that he speaks to a church, he gives them a different introduction. Because the problem is that city has a different idol, a different demon, a different brokenness that they believe in. In, in Smyrna, th- this was a city that had died economically, but then they resurrected. So what that city would say is, we were dead, but now we're alive. Because when you died economically, you never came back. And she's like, whoa, 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 time out. I was the one that died and resurrected. I resurrected something bigger than your economy. I went to the tomb and I came back. And he's saying these words to speak to this chant, this mantra that the city has. Last week was the city of Pergamum. And they believed in the sword. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 time out. You think your sword's big? When I speak, a double-edged sword comes out of my mouth. Thyatira has a similar attitude. In this city, even though it was small, even though it wasn't like as large as the other cities, there were different issues that they had. In this city, there, there were guilds, a.k.a. like labor unions. Like think of plumber unions or like contract, electrical contractors or like guy who hung drywall. You were part of a union back then. If you were in labor of any kind, you were part of a guild. And in these guilds, you had to worship that God. So if you wanted to get a job, you had to have sex with this prostitute and worship that God. And if you didn't, it wasn't like the other cities where they threw you in jail or killed you. They would pinch you with the penny. They, would, they wouldn't give you work. So the pressure was always financial in Thyatira. And you have to understand, the, the biggest God in this city was a God named Apollo. Someone say Apollos. Now, for those of you that went to public school, you don't remember what your fourth grade teacher said. Let me remind you, the Zeus God had a son named Apollos. And so this city would brag about their wealth, brag about their guilt, and they would actually say this, our city is the city where the Son of God lives. And they would boast about being the city, and Jesus like, whoa, whoa, time out. I'm the Son of God. I was the one that was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross. I know you think Zeus is God, but I'm the real Son of God. And so you got to understand, he's speaking this word to this church to remind them who he is. And then he continues. Watch what he says. I know your deeds. Someone say deeds. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more. Someone say more. More than you did at first. Every leader, every manager in this room, every parent, let me just give you a leadership principle that Jesus does every single week. He connects before he corrects. Before he rebukes this church, and this is about to be a heavy rebuke, just warning you. He says, I see you, I love you, and I want to affirm you. I believe in you. If God did not love them, he would not correct them. The opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. When you stop loving someone, you stop correcting them. When your boss doesn't correct you at work, watch out, you might be losing a job. The fact that your boss is correcting you is an indication that he still believes in you, he still wants to see more in you, and that's what Jesus is doing. The Bible says that God disciplines those that he loves. If he's not disciplining you, are you a son? So Jesus is speaking these words. I, I see what you're doing. You're, you're growing in love. You're persevering. You're not quitting when other churches quit. And he's encouraging them, but he's going to throw a, the gauntlet down. He says, now you're doing more. And we got to understand that this is a growing church. Last year, they had 100 people. This year, they had 200. Last year, they had one service. Now, they got two services. Last year, they baptized 10. This year, they're baptizing 20. This is a growing church. And Often we think, oh my gosh, everything's up and to the right. I'm making more money. My bank account's growing. The church is growing. Everything is good. And we assume because I'm being blessed, because things are growing, that means God's with me. He's for me. Who can be against me? And there's this add to the church. It's like this. Healthy things grow. Everything on the outside looks good. So everything on the inside must be good with God too. 
It's this mentality of milly vanilli Christianity where all you measure about God's blessing on your life is, is my bank account bigger? Is my, my getting promoted? And you don't look at the character and your integrity and your walk with God. Let me, let me make this practical. In our culture, there's, there's like this huge subculture on Instagram of like health influencers. There's like real strong people like they do strong man and CrossFit. Those are like the real athletes. And then there's the people that are just bodybuilders. Some of you are, I'm not making fun of you. Please don't beat me up after service, okay? But one of the ways that you know someone's a bodybuilder, you just slap them across the face and run. Why? Because they'll get a heart attack chasing you. Because on the outside, they look strong, but their heart has no cardio. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. You guys are spiritual bodybuilders. On the outside, you look good. But bro, if you got to run, you're going to die. And Jesus says, I know you're telling me healthy things grow, but this is Jesus' response. But so do weeds. Don't assume growth is from God. Don't just because assume the outside is growing because everything's up and to the right that I'm behind it. I remember as a kid growing up, this is like before cell phones and your iPhone had like a, the, the Apple Watch pay thing. Everyone carried cash. Anyone remember those days? Where, remember when you'd buy a wallet? There's actually a place not only for cash but for like your coins. Those days are gone, right? Now everyone has a cell phone and the, the wallets just store the credit cards and often goes to the back of the phone. But back when I was a kid growing up, you would often hand someone cash and you had to wait for them to do the math. And sometimes if you were blessed, how many of you know what I'm talking about? They would give you back more money. <laughs> right? You, you assume because you handed them a five, you're like, God loves me. That's what this church is doing. They're not walking in integrity. They're not walking with faithfulness. They handed God a five and he, the 20 came back. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm being blessed. I wrote it like this, prosperity sometimes is more of a sign of God's patience than his blessing. Don't assume because it's going up that God is the cause of that. Sometimes it's a test, not a blessing. I see this all the time. My wife and I, we have this very close family friend and she is... The best way to describe it is obsessed with Justin Bieber. She wants to be Justin Bieber's friend. She doesn't even call him Justin Bieber. She calls him the Biebs. And uh, every like four or five years, Justin, Be the Biebs, I'm sorry, the Biebs, he comes to town. And I think a year and a half ago, two years ago, he had a concert here in the Bay. I think it was Oakland or San Francisco. And my, our friend, my wife and I, she paid $700 for two tickets I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you're not like a fan, you're a fanatic. The problem was that the tickets she bought were incorrect. The, the seats weren't next to each other. So she contacted Ticketmaster saying, hey, can I get a refund? This is not working out. Well, Ticketmaster, of course, gave her the refund. But a few weeks later, they still mailed her the tickets. So what would you do in that scenario? It's the same scenario where you hand the cashier a five and it gives you a 20. Do you pocket and go, God loves me. And so she went to the concert for free. And then when we all talked about it as friends, I remember asking her, like, like, why would you go? She's like, look how much God loves me. Why would he give this to me? He knows how much I love Justin. This is God's blessing on my life. I'm like, girl, it is. I couldn't even say it. I'm like, no, it's not. This is God's judgment. His patience does not mean he's for that thing. And often we do that as Christians. We want to play the part 
oh, you know it's true. It's my attempt to dance. And we do the jig at church because everything at home and at work is going up. And the problem is it's Milli Vanilli Christianity. What are you sacrificing to go? What are you giving up to get the promotion? What are you doing to get ahead? That's the question. God could care less about the money in the bank. He cares about what's in the heart. And then he addresses the root issue. He says, nonetheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Someone say tolerate. tolerate. Jesus has one primary message to the church, and it's going to be shocking for some of you in this room. The church in Thyatira was this, a tolerant church. And that's confusing for some of you, because in our culture, like, tolerance is like a virtue. Isn't, that a, isn't this the virtue of virtues? Isn't like, are Christians a tolerant people? Is, is Christianity a tolerant religion? If you are a believer, let me tell you, you're probably being asked this question right now. If you're new to church, you're the one asking the question. Are we a tolerant people? Is Christianity a tolerant religion? And we got to begin by defining what tolerance is so that we're all on the same page. Tolerance is this. Tolerance is to endure without repugnance, without aversion to objection. Big, big definitions. Without a strong distaste for, but this is the easiest one to understand, to put up with. To simply put up with. And in America, tolerance is king. And yet to Jesus, Jesus doesn't like tolerance, and it creates this tension. And there's an author, a sociologist by the name of Peter Berger. And he talks about in his book, Sacred Canopy, if you want to go deeper, read this. He says every organization, every workplace, every place where you work, our country, they have a culture. Let me show you our culture. Our tribe? Because we're a loud church. That's the culture of this community. And whenever you join a church or a business, they have a culture. That's also true of countries. And what Peter Berger is explaining is that culture is this unspoken language, this, this, this hidden rules that you're supposed to behave this way. And you don't, go to, you don't go to a class in elementary school. Everyone just lives that way. Well, two-thirds of the world is what's called shame and honor culture. I remember as a little kid coming home from elementary school, and my mom would be like vacuuming the house. I'm like, Mom, are we having guests tonight? Why are you cleaning? She's like, no, no, no. Go to your room and clean. I'm like, why, Mom? Are we having a party? Why are we cleaning the house? She's like, no, the cleaners are coming tomorrow. And I was like, wait, what? She's like, we can't show her how dirty we are. So she literally would clean the house to look more honorable to even the cleaner. That's culture. Because in Asian culture, Shame and honor is king. That's not, we don't live in Asian culture. We live in American culture. And the king virtue, the virtue of virtues is tolerance. Tolerance is defined by this. It's an assumed virtue. In America, tolerance is king. If you, hold, if you don't hold an open hand, a tolerant view, where you agree and support and embrace everyone and everything, listen, you will be bigoted, you will be labeled as stupid or small-minded. And that's the tension that's created. Jesus wants us to follow him, not what the culture says. Let me bring you a real-world example. Go back to 2008. In America, or in California, there was a, a law by the name of Prop 8. They tried to codify same-sex marriage in, in California. Now, regardless of where you stand on this issue, I, I'm not here to debate you or argue with you. I'm just telling, trying to tell you, in 2008, this issue of same-sex marriage came to California. And I'm just going to speak from my own perspective. Long before I was a pastor, I spoke with my high school friends, my family, my coworkers, and even most of Californians, two out of three, they voted no on Prop 8. Because the prevailing thought, if this, this statue, 
This podium is the culture and, and Christianity's me. We were in alignment. 60 to 70% of people in California said, we don't want that. But then you fast forward to 2015 under Barack Obama. Same-sex marriage was codified under law. And the values in America changed. Those friends and family that were against it in 2008, the vast majority of them became for it in 2015. And that was eight years ago. And here I am standing over here holding the same position, the same values, and yet the culture is moving further and further away from biblical Christianity. And I'm being labeled now a hate, a hater, a big, small-minded, and all I'm saying is we haven't changed in 3,000 years. The culture's changing. And the culture says, you adjust or we're going to shame you. you. You do what we say, and there's this pressure that we're supposed to change and do what everyone else is doing, and that's what I need to tell you. There, there's Two voices right now. One is God saying, be holy as I am holy. Live the way that I live. Let, let me define sexuality for you. Let me define what forgiveness is. I want you to love your enemies. They, they say cancel them. They say an eye for an eye. No, no, no. I want you to love your enemies and bless them. And on this side, there's cancel culture. We're going to define whatever we want. And they're both asking for obedience. And that tension where one side's telling me to do this and shaming me. The other side is loving me, saying, follow me. I need to point out to you, that's the pressure that Thyatira's in. That's the pressure that everyone in this room is in. We hear two voices. Which one, I, I want to be loved by my friends. and I want to be viewed as tolerant. I don't want to be small-minded. But I want to obey God. G.K. Chesterton, this original OG. If never read any of his books, this guy's a genius. He says this, tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. The problem is not that you're tolerant. The problem is that you have no backbone. That's what he's saying. He's saying you don't have values. And when you don't have values, you, you constantly change to what culture says. That's the issue. That's what Jesus is trying to address. He says the problem with Thyatira is not that you don't know who I am. The problem is you're letting them define what I'm telling you. So the question is, why is Jesus so intolerant? This makes him look unloving. To a world that looks at Christianity and says, you guys are so closed-minded. We're often known what we're against and what we're for, and we're stuck in this middle of this culture world where we're being shamed. And yet the reality is we haven't stopped preaching the same message for over 3,000 years. Let me tell you, my wife and I, we don't teach anything new. We have dinosaur theology we're trying to make the oldie but goodie. That's what they say about music. That's true of good theology. It's an oldie but goodie. Whenever someone says, oh, I, let me tell you what the Bible actually says. It's like, bro, come on. Okay, yes, exactly. But why is Jesus, because this makes him look bad. But let me give you the reason. I'm going to put two words on the screen. I want you to write these down. One is orthodoxy. One is orthopraxy. So, for example, if God says, I want you to love your enemies, the doctrine is forgiveness. Where all culture says, if you stab me in the back, if you mistreat me, I'm going to cut you out of my life. We're never going to be friends. I'm never going to talk to you. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The pagans do that. Love your enemies. And he says, this is the teaching, so this is how you should live. Often we think Christians we're taken advantage of because of forgiveness. No, 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 no. God forgave us when we didn't deserve it, so we're going to forgive others that hurt us when, we don't, when, they don't, when they don't deserve it. Amen? And then God also defines not only that. He defines what we should do with money. He defines how we raise our kids. He defines sexuality. And the right doctrine leads to right living. And God wants you to be free. 
That's the key. That's why he's so intolerant of bad teaching, because bad teaching puts you in bondage. The theologian Daryl Johnson, he's a pastor, theologian, professor, he said this, here Jesus presents himself as passionately intolerant. This is to the church of Thyatira. Why? Because he loves the truth, he speaks the truth, and he is the truth. And because falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people. God died so that you can be free. So he's against anything that puts you in bondage. Jesus is passionately intolerant, not because he's small and closed-minded, but because he passionately is intolerant of people being enslaved. He died so that you could be free. Jesus is so intolerant of false ideas influencing the church because any form of falsehood makes for bondage. And thankfully, we have a good God. He will not tolerate people being in bondage. That's why Jesus wants us to follow him and it gives the appearance that he's, he's not, he's not small-minded. He's never changing. That's the key you have to understand. And Jesus is speaking to the church like Jesus didn't just die on a cross to pay for your sin. He didn't just resurrect and defeat death. He didn't just defeat Satan. He died not just to win spiritually, but to give you truth. Because he wants you to live free, amen? And he's speaking to this church saying, when you tolerate compromise, you're saying it's okay to do the wrong thing for the right reason. That's what he's addressing. And this church in Thyatira, the issue was these guilds. That one-third of the community, almost half of this, this city, you had to be part of a guild, a false religion to get work. It wasn't that you would be unemployed. It was just hard to get work. So there's this pressure to compromise for money. To do things you would never want to do to get a paycheck. And Jesus is literally saying, you ought not to put up with what you're putting up with. You're doing things that dishonor me. You're becoming comfortable with sin. It's, it's like, do not endure what you should not endure. You ought to object some of the practices. You ought to have a bad taste in your mouth for what the Thyatira is doing. And if I could write it in one sentence, it's this. You've lost your distaste for sin for a paycheck. That's what he's addressing. It's not that the Christians were being thrown in jail. It's that their paycheck was smaller if they followed Jesus. And let me just acknowledge that pressure is in America today. That people lie on their resume to get the job. They cheat on their taxes to get more take home. That when they switch jobs, they go, how much were you making? Oh, I was making this even though you were making this because you want the salary. Everyone does it. And Jesus is saying, but you don't have to be like everyone. Let me provide for you. Let me be the miracle worker. Let me, let, me, let me grow your business. Let's be business partners. And there's this pressure to not do it God's way. Let me just acknowledge the elephant in the room. Some of you are exploring Christianity and you're like, I knew it. All of you are fake. I knew you guys were liars. And let me address that issue. Uh, Eugene Peterson says this. Christian churches are not, as a rule, a model community of good behavior. They are rather places to be where misbehavior is brought out in the open and faced and dealt with. So if you have those practices, welcome to Christian community where everyone's jacked up just like you. But the good news is we can confess and be provided by a God. Amen? So can I confess my, my issue? 
It's easy to tithe on your salary. It be, I, my faith was tested when we sold our home in 2016, and we had a tithe on our home. Uh, we, my wife and I, we, we did ministry for many, many years up in Sunnyvale. It's like 10 miles away, but we lived near Moffat Field, and we knew we wanted to reach this community, this 288 intersection by Santana Row and Valley Fair. God called us here. We wanted to plant a life-giving church in this community. That's why we launched a Santana Row. We sold our home. And we tried to buy a home in this area. And when we sold our home, there was this conviction that my wife and I had that we tied on the difference of what we bought for what we sold. And let me tell you, my hand was like shaking. <laughs> and Pastor Yaz has way more faith than me. I would have quit a long time ago with all the difficulties we had. She's always been the strong anchor. Shut up, Allie. Let's keep going, right? And that's a mean way of saying she has more faith than me. Can we just give it up for Pastor Yaz, right? And my hand is shaking. And I just want to be transparent. It was like a $40,000 check. My hand's shaking, giving up this money. And even my agent was like, what the heck are you doing? You won't be able to buy a house. He's, he's like rebuking me. I'm like, I, I, we have a conviction to walk with God. And so we went from home to home, and our budget was limited because I'm a pastor now. And I remember we'd go to this home, and it was exactly 900 grand. And I go to the we want this house. He's like, you probably can't get it because you need to overbid to get this house. I was like, well, we're going to write the guy a letter. He's like, those don't work. <laughs> I said, well, look, agent, I saw a rosary in the backyard. I want to lean in on that real quick. <laughs> right? So I wrote a letter saying, look, we don't just want your home to raise a family. We want your home to do ministry. Please consider us. My agent was like, it ain't going to work. He almost implied that he didn't even want to submit the, re the offer because he knew we were already outbid. I said, let's just put God to the test. Two days later. Two days later. He said, in 25 years, I've never seen someone be outbid by 50 grand and get the house. You're the proud owner of that home. And I'm telling you, you don't have to lie and cheat to get what God wants to give you. Even as a pastor, I felt that pressure not to. And the only reason I gave that check is because of the faithfulness of my wife. So she deserves that honor. But I'm telling I tell you, we all have this pressure to lie. Because there's so much lying. There's so much dishonesty in this valley that we, we, we believe the lie. I can't live with God and be blessed. And I want to tell you, that's Millie Vanilli Christianity. And there's a God in heaven. He sees your burden. He sees your pressure. And he says, let me show myself strong in your life. Can we just get up for Jesus real quick? He wants to provide. Amen. And this was the root issue in Thyatira. The church of Thyatira, they knew God. They just didn't trust God. He's a father that corrects. And he's a father that wants to provide as well. But where is this influence coming from to not listen? And it's the same influence they had. Listen, it's the same influence we had. Jesus is about to share some stuff that's going to sound a little crazy, but it's biblical. You ready? First Corinthians, Revelation 2, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. Someone say tolerate. That woman Jezebel. Okay, now let me just point out to you a couple weeks ago, Jesus is speaking to this church. He said, I know where you dwell. Satan lives in that city. And because we're American and we, we make the spiritual world smaller than it is, we go, where, where does he live? What's the address of Satan's house? Can I look up his house on Zillow and see how much he pays in property taxes? 
And when you see Jesus talk about this woman, we think it's a physical person. In the same way that Jesus used a physical metaphor of a spiritual reality where Satan dwelled, listen, Jesus is using a, a physical name to speak of a spiritual reality. There's not a person in, in Thyatira literally named Jezebel. You know how I know? That's like an American naming their child Osama bin Laden. Or a warrior fan naming their children LeBron James. That's like, it's never going to happen, right? So who is this woman Jezebel? Because she's a real person in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 16, there's this woman. She's the wife of the king of Israel, a guy named Ahab. And she was the one wearing the pants. That's the best way to describe it. She was the one leading the home. She was the one leading the nation. And what she did is she killed all of God's prophets and leaders, all the priests. And she set up her own false religion. And she didn't just lead the kingdom in a different direction. She led the whole country into apostasy. Because that's what false leaders do. They lead for themselves. They, they lead incorrectly. And the question is, well, who does this demonic spirit influence? Because if it's there back then, it's not like we're any more godly and we don't have this today. It's still here. Who does it attack? Watch what it says. Jesus says in Revelation 2.18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Someone say angel. This is not the, like the angel, like angel being, it's the Greek word angelos. It's on your screen. Angelos literally means messenger. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel writers would often talk about John the Baptist as angelos, the messenger of God. They weren't saying he was an angel. They were saying he was a messenger. And what Jesus is saying, he's speaking, listen, to the pastor of this church. If you're part of the dream team, can we give up your hand? Raise your hand and just make some noise real quick. If you're part of the dream team at this church. I got good news and bad news. God's blessing you because you're building this church. Bad news is Satan has a bullseye on your back because you're building this church. That's what this is saying. He's not after those outside the church. This spirit attacks those in the church. Those that are building the church. Why does Jesus do that? Same reason why when the, the, the Warriors are playing any team. What do they do with Steph Curry? They double team him. Because they know if you take out the best player on the team, you can hurt the rest of the team. Hosea 4 verse 9 says this, it shall be like the people like the priest. If he can get the priest to fall down, then the, the people will fall down. And this demonic spirit, it's still alive and well as it was back then, as it is today. And it wants to bring compromise. It wants to bring tolerance in the church. And it doesn't attack the community Text the leaders in a local church. And there are four characteristics. So my wife and I, we've had to learn the hard way how to discern this spirit. Let me give you four things real quick to self-identify. Number one, those influenced by the spirit, consider them spiritually elite. I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm so mature. Oh, I know the Bible so well. And they always want to elevate their knowledge. They always want to pray first. They always want to correct. And they see themselves as a leader even though no one else does. And it says, those, she says, Jezebel, though you consider yourself a prophetess, she calls herself a prophetess even though no one in the church does. And I remember I had to learn the hard way that Satan is always attacking the local church. I remember when we were literally eight people, I had a mentor of a church uh, in Dallas, Texas, Lake Point Church, they had 15,000 people. He's one of the best leaders in America. And he calls me up and he's coaching my wife and I. And he goes, hey, Pastor Ali, I just need to warn you. Satan is coming for your church. I was like, I know. He's going to show up when we have like 1,000 people. Not right now. And he, the, the line went silent. He's like, no, right now. 
I'm like, we have eight people. What's he want to attack? He's like, he's always showing up. I'm like, how do I know? He's like, have you given away titles yet? I said, yes. He's like, take them away. He said, don't give anyone in your church a title for a year. I said, why? He's like, you need to see who has, who's influenced by the spirit. I'm like, are you kidding me? Remember we, the next time we had a launch team meeting, there's, there's literally eight of us. I said, hey guys, I made a mistake. I gave seven of you titles. I'm taking them all back. And everyone on the team, seven out of eight people said, cool. One person pulled me aside and said, I'm done. I won't serve in this church unless you give me a title. And I was like, bro, I thought you were all in. That's what the spirit wants to do. The spirit won't serve unless you have a title. The spirit sees himself as spiritually. And listen, this is an equal opportunity spirit. It's the men and the women. And often we think, oh, it's a Jezebel spirit. It must be a woman. No, the guy that could not tell it was a dude in our church. And this spirit will tell you, I'm spiritually elite. And whenever you go into their life, there's always massive compromise. This guy that refused to serve without the title of pastor, when I got close to his life, I said, tell me about your prayer life. He never spent time with God, never prayed, but he wanted to lead. And you always find this duality in people's lives. They want the title, but they want the title of leader. They don't want the lifestyle of a leader. Number two, those who are influenced by the Spirit elevate their word above the word. I know the Bible says that, but I, I went to college. Let me, let me, let me tell you the, the attitude that you should have towards the Scriptures. I don't care how smart you are, how educated you are, if you have a PhD or a master's degree, if you want to live a healthy biblical lifestyle, following Jesus with all, he's going to tell you things, let me just tell you, that don't make sense. He doesn't ask for agreement. He asks for submission. Because he knows there's going to be times that you're going to obey him even when you don't agree, even when it doesn't make sense. That's why it takes faith. And your attitude needs to be this. I don't understand why you want me to love my enemies. I don't understand why you want me to keep my pants on when I die. I don't understand why you want me to give you 10%, but I'm going to obey you anyways. Even though I don't feel like it. And the moment you do this, I know better. I, I, I went to school. I know the Bible says this, but you elevate your word above the word, you're done. It's done. And they'll often, when, when, when the spirit is evident powerfully in someone's life, they become very argumentative with my wife and I. They go, I know the Bible says this, but Jesus never addressed this. The Bible never says that. And you're right. There are some things the Bible does not address. doesn't talk about weed. doesn't talk about porn. Jesus never uses the word homosexuality. But the principles in Scripture are still clear. Let me give you three principles on the screen to help you on this journey. When you don't know what to do in work, when you don't know what to do in your relationships, when you don't know what to do in life, and you have doubts. Someone say doubts. Don't do it. The goal is not to get as close to the line as possible. The goal is to live a holy lifestyle. Until God grows your discernment, don't do it. Second thing is conviction. Someone say conviction. I love Christianity because it's not a rule book but a living God that lives inside of you. I remember when I was, there was this youth group I led. We had maybe 10 kids, and we grew it to like 25, and there was this one kid in my group that came every single week for nine months, was the worst kid. He was like the son of an elder in the church. The dude was li literally, was a drug dealer. Li li like literally, he was we dealing weed all the time. And I just had a vision for this guy that God was going to get this kid and change his life. And we went to L.A. on a mission trip for a week. And when we come back, he prays to receive Christ. Miracle. Two weeks later, he knocks on my door at 10 o'clock at night on Friday. I need to talk to Pastor Alley. I go, why? He goes, I'm upset with you. 
Say, come on in. I'm playing video games on my bachelor's tenagar on Friday night. <laughs> Sitting down. He goes, I can't do it anymore. I go, you can't do what? He's like talking very vaguely. He's like, can't deal weed anymore. It's your fault. <laughs> I go, whoa, whoa, just let's time, what's going on? He goes, every time I try to deal weed, I feel something that I shouldn't be doing this. You ever see the, 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 Homer, the Simpsons, the, Mr. Burns, the, the guy who, the boss of uh, Homer Simpson? He goes, ha, 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 excellent. I'm literally laughing my brains out. Ha, 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 ha. God's got you, bro. You're done. He's like, why are you so happy? I'm like, you're a son of God now. God only disciplines those he loves. The reason you have conviction is because you're a Christian now. We don't follow a rule book, but a living God. He's inside of you, bro. Good luck selling weed. Ha, ha, ha. He was so angry with me. Listen, when you don't know what to do, listen to that voice. It's going to tell you things that may not be sinful, but the Spirit doesn't want you to do it. In my own life, when I, when I first became a Christian, for 10 years, God told me not to watch TV. I'm like, what's wrong with ESPN? It's not sinful. He's like, yes, but you don't need it. And I look back now, 20 years ago, it's because God was preparing me for this. And God has a plan and purpose for your life. And he doesn't give you a rule book. He gives you his spirit. He wants to be your guide. Listen, when you, when you have doubt, don't do it. When you, have, when you hear his voice it's called conviction, listen to it. Yeah. Number three, evaluation. Someone say evaluation. evaluation. When you don't know what to do, listen, this is going to hit some of you. Ask this question. If anyone in my church saw the way I was working, saw what I was doing privately, or how I'm dating this girl, would this help their faith or hurt their faith? Would I be embarrassed if they saw the way I'm living? Let me go a little bit further. If I saw Pastor Ali and Pastor Yasmin doing what I'm doing, would I still respect them? Would I still go to their church and listen to them if they were doing what I was doing? Don't give yourself a get-out-of-jail-free card, but you wouldn't give it to anyone else. God wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. And whenever you elevate your word above the word, you're being influenced by someone other than the Spirit of God. Number three, those who are influenced by this Spirit have a disdain for all authority that's not theirs. Let me just tell you, this spirit is already in America. It has a disdain for all authority. Parents, teachers, first responders, police, politicians. One side of the policy says, hashtag not my president. The other side says, let's go Brandon. And both sides are wrong. Because you have dishonor for those in authority. God doesn't say you have to like those in authority. God says, respect and honor those in authority. And whenever you say, I, I, I can't listen to you because you, 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 you can't speak to my life. There's this attitude. You can't tell me what to do. And that, that's, a, that's a demonic spirit because God wants you to submit. I have, have to submit to a board. I can't ask you to submit if I'm not doing it myself. And I hear this all the time. I won't submit to this leader, but I'll submit to you, Pastor Ali. Listen, that person's authority is delegated from me. Where does my authority come from? It's delegated from God. So when you say you can't submit, you're saying, I can't follow Jesus. Last one is this. Those influenced by the Spirit refuse to repent. You cannot disciple a demon. So my wife and I, we've just learned, whenever we hear the way this, it's not, we're, ang we're never angry at the person. We're always angry at the Spirit behind the person. We love people. 
even when they dishonor us. But this spirit refuses to repent. Jesus says, I'm waiting for her to repent. She didn't know if you're in this room, God loves you so much. He's just patient. He's patient. Look what it says next. Revelation 2, verse 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not who do not hold on to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. What's he talking about? He's talking about loophole Christianity. Where you can look good on the outside, where everything's growing and going up to the right, but on the inside, it's, there's this tolerance. He says, I will not impose on you any other burden on you except to hold on. Someone say, hold on until I've come. There's a, another way of doing Christianity. That I want to end, I want to offer you in closing something different. That in the same way God so loved the world that he sent his one only son, that through Jesus we have forgiveness, we have salvation, we have redemption, and we're set free. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, For it is by grace, someone say grace, you have been saved. You know what you long for more than tolerance? Freedom. You long for love. You long for forgiveness. You long for grace. You long for relationship with God. Amen? That's what we long for. But the problem is, I wrote like this, truth without grace is mean. You ever see those street preachers yelling at everyone? If you you turn or burn, they never lead anyone to faith. Why? Because they're just mean. They're just giving you the truth. Before Jesus corrects this church, he gives them love. He says, I see you. I'm still committed to you even though You're not walking with me. God doesn't give up on you even though when you give up on him. And truth without grace is mean. But the next one is also true. Grace without truth is meaningless. And in a culture that shames you, in a culture that gets angry, a culture that wants you to bend your knee to tolerance, you want to be the most loving, the kindest person. Kindness can still lead people to hell. I know it doesn't sound fun to say, but you can be the most hospitable, you'd be the nicest employee, the kindest person at work, and still not tell them there is no other way through to salvation apart from Christ. That the wage of sin is death. Kindness does not lead anyone to the kingdom. It's, it's this combination. I wrote like this, it's knowing the truth and letting the truth set you free. Jesus was both. He wasn't just truth, this mean, angry God. He wasn't just... A fairy just skipping through the fields, just love. He was both my favorite stories when in John chapter 8, he bends down on one knee with a woman caught in adultery. And these, all these men are there to stone her. And he's willing to save her life. He says, where are the men that are here to condemn you? She goes, they're not gone. He goes, neither do I condemn you. And then he says something so powerful. He says, go and sin no more. Stop sleeping with men that aren't your husband. He gives her love and truth. And it's that tension of both that God wants his servants to walk into. And John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace. Someone say grace. And truth. Someone say truth. The only way to hold on the way Jesus is saying is to embrace both. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to pray for everyone in this room. God, thank you so much for this powerful and heavy word.
I pray for the church, God. There's this pressure, this tension that we feel to compromise, to just live the way that everyone in our valley lives, that if we don't, we won't be able to provide for our family, we won't get ahead. And God, we, we compromise, we tolerate for a paycheck sometimes. God, we're afraid to trust you. We're afraid of putting our life in your hands and having you provide for us. God, I pray for every person in this room. It's not greed that we, that's our stronghold. It's fear. Fear of trusting you. Fear of placing our life in your hands. God, allow us to be ambassadors for Christ. Not just with truth and not just with grace, but with grace and with truth. And for the rest of you in this room, there's a God in heaven. Romans 10, 13 says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you never knew that God loved you. You never knew that God left heaven 2,000 years ago on a rescue mission, not to give you a book, not to give you a religion, but to pay for your sin on a cross. And the only way to salvation is placing your faith in Jesus, that he died on a cross for your sin with every eye closed and with every head bowed. If you want to start a relationship with the living God, I want you to shoot your hand up on the count of three. One, two, three. If that's you this morning, just shoot your hand up. Shoot your hand up. Just pray this prayer with me. Everyone out loud. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving heaven for me. Thank you, God, that even when I don't obey you, even when I don't walk with you, you still love me. You didn't love me when I was your friend. You loved me when I was your enemy. I repent. I turn from my sin. I turn from my ways. And I want to follow you. I want you to be my God. As much as I understand now, I want to follow you all the days of my life. And everybody said... Hey, thank you again for listening to today's message. If you found today's sermon encouraging, inspiring, would you consider subscribing to this podcast? That way you won't miss the next word that's coming. See you next time.